Hi, my name is Kirk Hamilton, your host of the Staying Healthy Today Show. This is a show where we bring you key experts in the fields of nutrition, prevention, integrative, and lifestyle medicine. Today's show topic is diagnosing and treating Alzheimer's disease, an ophthalmologist's approach. My guest today is the medical director of the Comprehensive Retina Consultants in the Villages, Florida, Dr. Shalesh Kaushal, MD, PhD. I first met Dr. Kaushal when he was giving a lecture at an anti-aging meeting in Phuket and he was talking about the metabolic causes of chronic disease and then I interviewed him and did a podcast because he mentioned that as a retinal specialist it's kind of a window into the metabolism of the body and you can see the early uh, beginnings of not only macular degeneration but diabetes and then after that interview he mentioned that he can actually see early Alzheimer's or changes in the retina that are suggestive of early Alzheimer's and cognitive decline, which is incredibly important to get an early start in helping to reduce uh, the pathophysiology that causes this illness. So that is the topic of this interview today is to go over what an ophthalmologist or a retinal specialist can see that helps give an idea that cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease is coming and that we can do something about it and he will also get into the things that he does about that. So welcome Dr. Kashal. Thanks for being on the show today. Thank you, Kurt. Looking forward to chatting with you. Before we get going, just a little bit about your professional background. And I know you have a medical degree, you're an ophthalmologist. Uh, what was a PhD in? My PhD was in biochemistry and molecular genetics. I worked on the visual system with Dr. Hargo Ben Karana at MIT, uh, Nobel Laureate. Let's jump, jump right into it. When did you first recognize that there was connection between Alzheimer's disease and the eye, or how did you see that connection? The reality is that it's not me. It's, it's uh, many people in our field. Uh, in vision biology, coupled with the, the uh, colleagues in neurology, and also in cardiology as well, for that matter, started to understand as I, let's say over the last 15 to 20 years, as our techniques and methods of probing disease states, so in particular understanding the biochemistry of some of the critical pathogenetic events that lead to the development of chronic diseases like macular degeneration, like coronary artery disease, like Alzheimer's disease, and a whole host of others, as you and I talked about before, and I'm sure your listeners are aware of, that there was similarity uh, in what was triggering the disease process itself. It, it just so happened that the target tissue is different in these diseases. In other words, in Alzheimer's, it's the brain. In macular degeneration, it's the retina. In coronary artery disease, it was vascular endothelial cells, the lung cells of the blood vessels, and so on. So that, that understanding, as it became deeper, it was clearer that these diseases were biologically or biochemically more similar in the way that the root causes that lead to the disease process on one side. And then as clinical medicine continues to evolve as well, a smattering of report, and now there's more and more coming out regularly, that demonstrate a correlation between some of the earliest changes in the retina that are correlated with mild cognitive uh, impairment or minimal cognitive impairment. And then in in patients with frank Alzheimer's disease, there are actually thinning of the vasculature in the macula that can now be detected with some remarkable technologies that allow us to look at the various vascular beds within the retina itself. And I had been following this literature for quite some time because, again, as a biochemist, my interest in the similarities in the evolution of the development of these disorders or the pathogenesis is the correct term of these dis chronic disorders. And, of course, uh, being a retina specialist, 
we can directly visualize the brain. The retina is actually part of the brain. It's an outpouching of the brain during development. So we can uh, non-invasively monitor and visualize the retina in a very quantitative and reproducible way. So that that's sort of the origins of my own interest. And I, I wouldn't say just mine. Many, many retina specialists and neurologists, for that matter. I would say even in a larger sense, even uh, folks in, in primary care and internal medicine are very interested in this because of the consequences or I should say significant consequences of the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease but also as you're aware of and, and many I suspect listeners are aware of as well there are methods to mitigate against cognitive impairment and also there appears to be ways to mitigate against macular degeneration it's not just that there are changes in the retina that are correlated with uh, Alzheimer's disease what's even more striking is there appears to be a correlation between the development of macular degeneration and having Alzheimer's disease. So those are two different things, uh, clinical entities. So uh, again, it's these powerful non-invasive technologies that have evolved uh, for us as retina specialists over the last, uh, let's say, 10 to 15 years have just not only revolutionized the way we manage patients with diseases, now they have broader implications into the assessment uh, that one would assume the potential uh, management of patients with Alzheimer's disease because if you can see changes, then perhaps you can mitigate those changes and then observe what happens when you intervene in those instances. You know, one of the things I was looking for is that if you had a patient come in let's say for a regular eye exam and let's say they have some subtle cognitive impairment but they're too embarrassed to tell you and you know like that happens all the time and they don't want to share those kind of things could you look at the eye and some kind of retinal exam or functional exam of the eye and say I wonder if this person could have a cognitive issue just from the exam or the testing part without them telling you is that yeah possible? sure there are changes in the retina that are suggestive of cognitive impairment. I'll tell you in our own clinic, as it's evolved uh, over the last couple of years, I've actually spent a bit of time talking to my neurology friends and also neuropsychologists who do assessment of brain function. There's three major areas of brain function. There's executive function, in other words, how we make decisions. There's cognitive recognition or the speed of cognition. And then finally, there's memory. As I've learned over the last couple of years and also spent a bit of time understanding this and what, what, how can you measure it clinically, there's wonderful, again, quantitative tools to do that. So we've begun to look at our patients who may have changes within the retina that would be consistent with the published literature that there's a chance of developing Alzheimer's or may have Alzheimer's is to also probe brain function at the same time and then with that combination now you're able to say this patient has those retinal types of changes and they have evidence of perhaps a mild cognitive impairment but now you can do something about that as you know people like Dale Bredesen and others have really demonstrated and led the way in understanding how we can assess those patients further and then intervene clinically. So if a regular ophthalmologist let's say they're doing an exam can they see the same things on their basic exam for their general uh, macular generation patient or eye patient that you can see that would if, if you educated an ophthalmologist you know that was just a general ophthalmologist not a retinal specialist on screening tests could he then see the signs of cognitive decline you mean within the retina itself right so a uh, general ophthalmologist doesn't really follow uh, or uh, they may look at the retina but they may not have the uh, instrumentation 
to determine exactly those types of retinal changes. I would tell you, a group of retina specialists in particular, not all of us per se are necessarily interested in this. I I am because of my own longstanding interest in chronic diseases. But yes, a retina specialist who have this type of instrument to look at the blood vessel density in and around the macula can assess that. And then either they work with a neurologist or if they choose to have that kind of testing available in their own clinic, you can actually quantitatively, like I said, assess brain function. It's a rigorous test. Uh, There's many tests, but the one that we use is quite a rigorous 45-minute test for the patient. So when you say a brain function test, so I do a screening MOCA test. So this is actually sitting in front of a monitor and then answering and or responding to what's being shown on the monitor itself. So again, uh, testing those three major areas of brain function, executive function, speed of cognition or uh, recognition of auditory or visual stimuli, and then of course uh, memory. I mean, I could make an argument that would say that everybody over 60 gets that test done. So you selectively use that test for people you see the changes in? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I, I agree with you. I think everyone over the age of 60 should get it done regardless. <laughs> Maybe even starting at age 55. Because as you know, in the case of any chronic disease, the earlier you catch it, the greater the chance of reversing it. I mean, that's borne out in both experimental studies in the lab and also in human studies as well. So the earlier you detect the disease, the greater the chance of reversing and or outrightly curing it or getting rid of it, if you'd like to say it that way. So I agree with you on that. The, the, the other point that you're making, we're getting used to doing this testing in our clinic because as a retina specialist, it's, uh, obviously this is not something that most retina specialists do. And doing a test that takes 45 minutes distorts the way the clinic runs. So we try to do it on a day when I'm not in clinic. I'm in the operating room or maybe at a different clinic. And we have the patients come in and do the testing. Now, I will tell you, uh, we've had our own uh, along the way, in part, because it's such a demanding test. We've even had our technicians and our staff do it. It's rigorous. And this is actually a validated, extremely well-published on test. The major medical centers across the country use this to assess brain function as well. Uh, but our patients fatigue, especially older folks, as you, as you know, they just get tired. Uh, you're sitting for a half hour doing something intensively. Anyone would, really, for that matter. But particularly our older retirees, it's a challenge. But we're working on making it easier or more comfortable for them, not necessarily easier. But yeah, that to me is probably the most what? rigorous way to do it. Well, what they have is a specialized keyboard, and they've set it up on one of our monitors in our exam room. And so the patient sits there and responds with this specialized keyboard to first a set of questions and then after that uh, auditory or visual stimuli. And then, of course, a whole set of rigorous memory tests as well. So one of the things that, that I think sets apart cognitive decline in Alzheimer's from other chronic diseases is even if the the general pathophysiology is the same. Here's what I share with people. For example, you can take someone that has heart disease or diabetes, and they could go 20 years being treated with traditional medicines, and maybe their quality of life isn't great, but they could live. And then you could decide, okay, I am going to dramatically, I mean, I've seen this, I mean, dramatically change my diet, and you can reverse heart disease and diabetes. And so you have a greater window of lag time. Alzheimer's patients, what I observe is 
if you don't jump on them early, you may be able to see the path of physiology, but the family and the support structures have already put that person in an institution because they can't take care of them. Right. So you don't have a long window. And so the earlier you could diagnose a, a suggestion of it and make people really realize that there's something that they can change, that's tremendously valuable because that's what sets Alzheimer's apart from other diseases. People delay coming in, they're embarrassed, they don't want to, you know, they fight with their family about coming in and being evaluated. Then by the time they get evaluated, the family has to do everything for them. Yes. Well, as you know, across the country, and especially here in Florida where there's such a large retiree population, older folk, there are these memory centers are popping up everywhere. I assume that's happening in California as well where you are. And they Basically, the folks are uh, essentially an assisted living place, really, as I best understand it, from uh, family members of patients uh, who come to see me for their retinal issues but also have Alzheimer's as well. You know, God bless these uh, assisted living places. I think they help in terms of the general health of a patient or, or well-being, but they're not really educated or trained to take care of how you can potentially impact or improve or at least stem the tide uh, of the disease. Correct, and that's why I'm so interested in particular. You know, I have tremendous confidence with diabetes and heart disease if somebody wants to change at any level of the disease, you can reverse it. But in Alzheimer's, if you don't catch it early, they slide into an institution. And even if you did all the perfect assessment, let's say a Dale Bredesen cognoscopy type assessment, and we found all these things that are problems, you can't do anything because... It's overwhelming, even if you had a perfect scenario with a perfect family structure. So your ability to see it early, to me, is phenomenally valuable. And because you have some kind of test that gives you some meat to it, that might inspire families to jump on early, the lifestyle changes and then the diet changes and nutraceuticals, etc. then wait. Let's say you have an Alzheimer's patient, you, you see the cognitive decline, you share it with the family and that person. What are your kind of your basic first diet steps, let's say? Or what do you, do you take care so, of? Well, some of them, they come to us. Right. Obviously, as a retina specialist, I look into their eyes and tell them if, if they have macular degeneration and or these other changes. So what I discuss with the patient and their family is what I call foundational nutrition. I think uh, yourself and others who are, have been in the field for a while, we recognize that the average person, they may be aware of what nutrition is, but isn't aware of what good nutrition is and what that includes. I myself spend time, as does my staff, talking to patients about, so here are some at least fundamental things that everyone should be doing, including yourself when I'm speaking to the patient. And those include, for example, a, a high-quality multivitamin. We talked about the importance of omega-3 fat, a fish oil, or for those who are vegetarian, obviously, uh, sea plant consumption. We talk about the importance of the dark green vegetables, kale, broccoli, spinach, and so on. Particularly in the retina, uh, those vegetables are loaded with a compound called sulforaphane, which is profoundly protective of the retina, and particularly the macula. Dark fruit, getting rid of processed foods. Processed foods, we talk about them contribute significantly to the inflammatory component of the disease, which is one of the critical pathogenetic events that occurs in all chronic disease. We also talk to them about, in some detail, about the consumption of simple carbohydrates because it's quite clear, even outside of diabetes, glycemic control or the insulin signaling pathway, or if you'd like to call it, you know, the way 
our bodies dispose of glucose, where they partition glucose in our body, the cells, fat, muscle, and so on. Because it turns out in Alzheimer's, as well as in macular degeneration and even glaucoma, it's interesting, Alzheimer's is being called type 3 diabetes, type 4 diabetes or glaucoma has been called that type 4 and we propose that macular degeneration be called type 5 diabetes. Now, it's not that we need more numbers <laughs> associated with the type of diabetes, but it's simply to emphasize in my own mind uh, as I'm speaking to patients or to any patient really or, or any audience is that glycemic control or glucose disposal is incredibly important for the health of tissues and the longevity of tissues. So not only of their optimal function, right, but also their survivability as it were. So those turn out to be incredibly important, as I said, uh, not only in macular degeneration, but also in Alzheimer's disease as well. We spent a bit of time talking about that, getting rid of simple carbohydrates for sure, right? the processed foods, and, you know, white flour, white rice, white sugar, and fried foods for sure. How about environmental toxins? There's a test called the visual contrast test that Richie Shoemaker does. Supposedly, when it's abnormal, then you might be exposed to some environmental toxin. And as an ophthalmologist, I don't want to get too much into that because it's a whole other discussion, but is, is that, do you think that's relevant? Uh, well, let me back up uh, for just a moment, Kurt. So it turns out with the human eye, really what it is, it's a contrast sensitivity detector. So say, for example, when you go to the ophthalmologist or optometrist and they check your visual acuity, we, we can resolve or, or see smaller and smaller letters, which is visual acuity, right? But really the way we're detecting that is the difference between the white background and the dark black letters that are typically shown in a visual acuity chart, right? Now, here's an important point. See, visual acuity is not a very good measure of total vision. So there are eight pathways from the eye to the back of the head. And what's measured on a visual acuity chart assesses only one of those pathways. So the other seven pathways are never really tested. So that's, that's the second point. So again, to reiterate, the first point is the eye is a contrast sensitivity detector. And the second is visual acuity chart only measures one of eight pathways from the eye to the back of the head. Now to answer your question, uh, given that background, so there could be multiple different causes of loss of contrast sensitivity. For example, patients who develop cataract, that can be a, a, a way uh, that they lose contrast sensitivity. In fact, sometimes in certain clinical studies and clinical trials, they use that as an independent measure of the density of a cataract. Second, there can be changes in the retina, particularly in the macula, which cause a loss of contrast sensitivity. So to then finally come to what you specifically asked about is, yes, contrast sensitivity is a good test of overall, let, let's say, eye function, but it's not a specific test for a potential uh, exposure to like a fungal toxin or something like that. All right. What can you tell a person? I, I think it's clear that you can see early changes that relate to Alzheimer's disease when you're evaluating a retina. Yes. So how does the patient take this information and make it practical to them? I mean, they can walk into their ophthalmologist and say it, but it might not do any good yeah. because the ophthalmologist might look at them and say, well, I'm not a retinal specialist and I don't know what you're talking about. Right. <laughs> right. 
So, well, in the flip side, do people with increased AMD, um, age-related macular degeneration or glaucoma, do they tend to have more cognitive decline? Yes, but there is a correlation. So an ophthalmologist who are dialed into this area or aware of this field, they will say, oh, geez, you know, uh, Mr. X or Mrs. A, I see changes from glaucoma or from macular degeneration. And in fact, even diabetes, you know, diabetic retinopathy is also correlated with neurodegenerative disease diseases like Alzheimer's and also uh, potentially Parkinson's as well. So there's a whole area of clinical research that's opened up to really firmly establish the correlations between these diseases now. In fact, glaucoma used to just at one point as ophthalmologists, we used to think that it was high eye pressure equaled glaucoma. We know now that eye pressure is just simply a risk factor for glaucoma. The same risk factors for these other chronic diseases that we know of, like increased BMI, uh, hypertension, smoking, that are associated with Alzheimer's and macular degeneration, uh, coronary artery disease, and, and so on, are the same risk factors for glaucoma. And indeed, uh, the people in the area of glaucoma clinical and basic research, the thinking has evolved to that this is a neurodegenerative condition which has a unusual ocular presentation. So it's, it's quite interesting that what used to be considered a particularly specific eye disease, eye diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, are now thought of as chronic systemic diseases, if you'd like to state that way. Right. I was thinking, coming from a PCP, a primary care perspective or something like that, you're trying to motivate people and, and also see things. So a lot of times, I'll, I'll just say for myself, you know, glaucoma, you know, I know people say it's high blood pressure of the eye. I know that's not correct. And they would treat it and you kind of just skip over that. You know, they're taking their drops and that's kind of it. But as a primary care physician, you could say, listen, that can increase your risk to very serious problems such as Alzheimer's. And so that would be a reason to enter maybe screening that person when they don't. They go, what are you doing? And I said, well, your eyes connected as part of your brain and it's an extension of your brain. Right. They found an association with Alzheimer's to get people motivated to thinking about that because otherwise they just take their medicine and no one ever says anything. Exactly. That's exactly right. You and I talked about this before and I think that perhaps your listeners are already resonating with this. Is to these chronic disorders, they're not living in individual silos, right? They're connected to each other through the biochemistry and the genomics for that matter, right? We haven't touched on the genomics, but perhaps that's for another day. But at least the biochemistry. So what's happening, you know, just to circle back to the retina for the moment. See, it turns out the retina is metabolically very active and probably the most active tissue in the body and has the largest blood supply per unit weight. So anything that's happening in the body is, can be seen in the retina. And so if you see changes in the retina, you know that it's not just localized to the retina. In fact, the retina may simply be a barometer happening elsewhere in the body, or most often is, I should say it that way. So I think it's important, you know, like our primary care colleagues and internal medicine colleagues, they need to be aware of these types of medical concerns that we have. As ophthalmologists, when we see a patient with glaucoma or macular degeneration, that, that patient needs to go see their primary care doctor and say, hey, look, uh, I've been told this. I need to start doing those things that are going to improve my overall health or optimize my health as it were, so that I can limit and or reduce or, frankly, prevent the development of, of some, something like Alzheimer's disease. Well, I'd like to kind of finish up here. What I'd love to do sometime is just take 
one small condition, even though we're going to connect it to you know the overall me metabolism. But just take glaucoma and have your approach to it. Just take AMD and have your approach to it. Yeah. Uh, maybe we can do that for another day, or, or you know how you see environmental toxins. I know you're having a conference come up, and you want to invite professionals and the lay public. You want to talk about that? Sure. Is your sure. conference? I appreciate that, Kirk. So we are having our fourth annual uh, reversal of chronic disease meeting coming up in February, February 14th and 15th. Uh, 2020 here in Florida at the Innsbruck Golf Resort. It's a beautiful uh, golf resort. Uh, some of the PGA tournaments have played there. It's a little north of Tampa, about half hour from the airport in a beautiful area of uh, northwest Tampa, I guess you'd call it. And what we've done, we've invited over the, the past three and this upcoming one as well, world-class clinicians and scientists who also are really nice people. I've either collaborated with them or know of them directly uh, through meetings over the years. And uh, these are folks who have been working in the area of chronic diseases, both clinical and or as basic scientists. And we've been blessed to have wonderful scientists and clinicians uh, come to our meeting and speak. And this coming year is, uh, is no different. We're, we're some of the speakers who are going to be there include Dr. Jonathan Wright, who's I'd say one of the godfathers of nutritional medicine uh, in the United States. Uh, he'll be coming from the Tahoma Clinic. He's the director of the Tahoma Clinic. Very engaging, lots of fun, and a, a fountain of information. Uh, Robert Lustig, who's a professor of pediatrics at University of California, San Francisco. He's just done wonderful work on childhood obesity and also the biochemistry of how high fructose corn syrup is process in the liver, essentially, like alcohol. Dr. Dom D'Agostino at University of South Florida, he's uh, right in Tampa, a world-renowned uh, scientist who studies uh, nutritional ketosis and uh, has insights into ketogenic uh, approaches to chronic diseases. Uh, in addition, there's other wonderful people, Dr. Jay Cohn from the University of Minnesota, who's done just really under wonderful work in preventative cardiology. And then there's uh, Dr. Jeffrey Block from the University of Miami, who's an expert in cannabinoids. Uh, that, uh, a, a timely and very, um, everyone uh, from lay people to clinicians are interested in them. He gives talks all over the country, so we're, we're blessed to have him come. Dr. Robert Miller, who's really one of the pioneers of genomic testing in the management of chronic diseases and, and health. Uh, he'll be speaking. We're speaking about environmental toxin exposure. Dr. Andrew Campbell will be a speaker as well. He is an uh, allergist and immunologist who has been uh, a clinician uh, who is very interested in fungal diseases and the development of chronic diseases as well, uh, in particular. Uh, Dr. Risto Vajdani, I would say the, the godfather of functional immunology. He's done wonderful work on developing antibody testing for Alzheimer's disease, disease and other chronic diseases as well. Call our clinic, 352-775-1010 to register, or they can go to reversalchronicdiseases.com. Um, we're updating it. We just recently had a new graphic design person, so it's we're updating it, but the easiest thing to do right now is to simply call the number, and we can go ahead and register people for it. People are already starting to, they've been inquiring for a couple months already, and a set of folks have already signed up for the meeting. For those of your listeners who are physicians, MDs, uh, we'll be offering CME credits as well.
uh, this coming year. So that might be an, another enticement. I'm sure the speakers already are enticing enough for uh, most people. Uh, but uh, for those uh, MDs, uh, as I said, there will be CME credit. February 14th and 15th, Friday, Saturday. Okay. All right, Dr. Koshel, thank you so much for coming on the phone today. I know it's Sunday. It opens up the door to many more of these. <laughs> All right, well, we'll talk to you soon. All right, thank you. And I want to thank you, the audience, for listening to this edition of the Staying Healthy Today show. And until next time, stay and be well.